the rest of you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6 is a very uh, key chapter, uh, and as Mark's been unfolding uh, for us the answer to that question we just sang about, um, who is this? And all along, Mark's been giving us these uh, pictures of Jesus being like this, like this, like this. And so we we really do get to a sense of, of culmination here in these verses that are going to sound very familiar uh, to most of you if you've been in church for any length of time, uh, especially if church has been your thing all your life. You, you remember Jesus walking on water, just like Jesus feeding the 5,000 that we just covered last week. Uh, it's one of those accounts that is incredibly familiar. Uh, and the danger with a really overly familiar passage of the Bible is, uh, is not so much the whole adage that familiarity breeds contempt, but, but in the church, sometimes familiarity can just breed boredom. Uh, Over-familiarity, you, you sort of think, oh, I know about this. Uh, I don't think we know about this yet. I don't think we know all that God intends for us to understand about what it meant for Jesus to walk on the water. And if you're new, uh, new to the church or new to the Bible, new, new to... Uh, understanding who Jesus is, then this is a very, very important uh, passage for all of us uh, to come to grips with. So let's stand in honor of God's Word. I'm going to begin in verse 45. I'll read through verse 52. All right, immediately, uh, he that that is Jesus, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and to go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, uh, the boat was out on the sea, and he uh, was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. All right, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take the places in our own hearts that are hard and soften them. Uh, Soften our hearts to your reality, uh, to your goodness, to your love, to your holiness, to your forgiveness, uh, to your deity. Help us to see our lives uh, as as lived differently and, and significantly because you are with us, because you are God with us, and we are your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, you know, this is an incredibly significant passage because it, it shines a very, very bright light, a very distinct light on the identity of Jesus. Uh, and it gives us insight into something that we haven't seen as clearly before in Mark. Um, and, and that comes through fancy theological word called theophany. It's, a, it's an appearance of God to, to people. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up with this whole idea of uh, cardiomyopathy. 
Uh, we'll talk about that later. All right, um, so let's, let's look at the identity of Jesus. And, and the party's over. Jesus has just fed 5,000 plus another, you know, 10 or 15,000. Um, you know, we've got these separate accounts. All four Gospels record for us the feeding of the 5,000. And, uh, and in Matthew's Gospel, he mentions that, okay, yeah, Jesus fed 5,000, but that was just the men, uh, besides women and children. Uh, it, there were, there were 5,000 men besides women and children. So it was a huge crowd. And this miraculous feast in the wilderness has come to an end. And Jesus is seemingly making good on his intention, his promise to get the disciples away so that they could rest, so that they could sort of recoup because this pressure, the ministry has been so intense uh, and, and nonstop for so long that he, he wants them to get away. We read back in verse 31 uh, a couple of weeks ago that Jesus said to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat, right? There's another reason why Jesus uh, like if you look at our passage, it actually says that he made them get into the boat. He wasn't just saying, hey, do you guys want to, do you want to go on ahead? It's fine. You know, I'll, I'll clean up. You go get some rest. Instead, he, he compels them. He made them get into the boats, orders them to, to head on out ahead of him because there's something else that's going on here that, that in this case, it's John's gospel that gives us some insight into the crowd dynamics that are at play here. And we've seen throughout this series in Mark that this crowd can get restless, it can get intense, uh, it can become more of a mob than a crowd. And John does point out uh, in chapter six that uh, in his account, uh, he, he gives us this little uh, background that Jesus perceived then that the crowd was about to come and take him by force to make him king. And so Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Uh, so Jesus is doing two things. He's you know, making good on his promise to give rest to the disciples, but he's also avoiding a very politically uncomfortable situation. If this crowd demands that Jesus come and take his place as king of Israel, then he's gonna, the timing is off. That is not the right time and opportunity for him to confront uh, the, those powers that, that rule over uh, Israel at this time. So um, Jesus goes up on the mountain by himself after sending the disciples away, after sending uh, the crowd away. And this sounds like, you know, yeah, we've heard Jesus do this before. He understands the importance of spending time alone and quiet with his Father in heaven. And so if Jesus needs that time, how much more do we, right? So that, that's one takeaway. We need time alone with our Father in heaven. There's... There's spiritual significance there too, but there's a symbolic significance to this, you know, little, little detail that Jesus goes up by himself up a mountain to meet with God. 
And as, as we've been going all along, there are different hints and allusions that the gospel writers, Mark in this case, will, will drop saying, here's what Jesus did. And oh, by the way, doesn't that remind you of something else you know, in the Old Testament, something else in the Bible where we're meant to see Jesus as a fulfillment? And in this case, does it remind you of any other place in the Bible where a man, a very powerful leader of God's people, goes up on a mountain by himself to meet with God and to kind of bring down the, the FYI to the rest of God's people. You think of Moses, right? Moses goes up uh, at Sinai, and it's this powerful description out of Exodus where Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain, you know, trembled greatly, and the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. You know, God comes down, and Moses comes up, and really a lot of times when you see a, a mountain mentioned uh, in Scripture, that's, that's a place that's ripe for a meeting with God. God comes down, and uh, we go up. And Jesus is showing us that he's a fulfillment of, whom, of what Moses began in the wilderness, Jesus is completing. Uh, and that's not all. Uh, you know, the language from Exodus reminds us of uh, Job's, Job's description of when God comes down and he meets with us. Uh, Job says, uh, this is truly, uh, I know that it is so that how can a man be right before God. When, when God comes down and when man comes up and that meeting happens, how does that work? Because you think about God's character. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against God and succeeded? He who removes mountains and they know it not. When he overturns them in his anger, who who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, right? So this is, this is what happens when we meet with God. It's a holy encounter. It's something that, you know, you do ask the question, who, who is up for this kind of encounter? You know, was Moses truly? And now Jesus is stepping into Moses' shoes. Mark's uh, showing us that Jesus actually is not just another Moses, but he's better than Moses. Uh, Moses, you know, was God's agent to feed the people in the wilderness manna from heaven. You remember that? And then last week we were looking at how Jesus steps in as the new Moses, and he feeds God's people uh, with the, in the wilderness. And then he says, I am that bread. I'm, I'm even better than the bread that you're eating. I will give you, you know, food that will last for eternal life. Um, all along, Mark's been showing us other pictures of Jesus, and people have been asking, well, what is Jesus? Is he, is he John the Baptist, raised from the dead? Well, yeah, in the sense, he is, but he's better than John. He, he, he exceeds and excels beyond John's ministry. John was preaching this message of repent and and bear fruit in keeping with repentance and prepare your heart for the coming of the kingdom of God. And Jesus preached the exact same message, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. But yet even from John's mouth himself, he said, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. 
Jesus is better than John. Um, who else did people wonder uh, about Jesus' identity? I thought maybe he's Elijah re returning to earth uh, or one of the other prophets, right? And sure enough, the prophets would speak for God and they would preach and they would warn God's people and, and so on. And, and Jesus was doing that too. And yet you get to Jesus opening up in the, back in Nazareth. He was opening the, uh, the scroll to Isaiah, to the place where it's talking about uh, the kingdom of God coming. And then Jesus would say, not just that it's coming, but that it's arrived. And that today, this promise, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the fulfillment of this promise. I'm the fulfillment of the prophets. Uh, so he excels, exceeds the ministry of Elijah and the other, the other prophets. And think of David, you know, Jesus sees the crowd. He, he has compassion on them because they're like, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And we think of David, you know, that Psalm 23. Uh, Jesus is better than David. Jesus is better than all of these images that have been put before our eyes as we consider is he like this? Is he like this? Is he like this, right? Well, okay, let's go back to the disciples. We're trying to figure out Jesus' identity. So are the disciples. They're trying to figure it out as well. And in verse 47, you know, we're, we're just, you get this description of how now evening has come, the boat's out on the sea, and Jesus is alone. He's up on the mountain. He can, he can see down onto the surface of the water the wind, the waves, the boat, and, uh, and things are not going well for the disciples. Uh, he, Jesus could see that they were making headway painfully for the, the wind was against them. And by the way, what time is it? At this point, uh, Jesus could see that they're making headway painfully, as Mark describes it. And when Jesus does go out, uh, on to the surface of the Sea of Galilee, we're told it's the fourth watch of the night. That's between three and six in the morning. So we get this picture of just how arduous uh, this, this little trip across the Sea of Galilee is for the disciples who are, are rowing. They've, they've got a headwind. They can't tack, so they have to row. And they are going backwards instead of forwards. And these are lifelong experienced fishermen who know their way around a boat, who know the Sea of Galilee, and they are basically brought to a point of helplessness, making headway painfully. Do you ever, do you ever have days and weeks and months and I mean, maybe it even seems like years where you just make headway painfully? I mean, even in your skill set, you just go, I cannot get traction. I'm going in reverse instead of forward. And um, just to give you a little glimpse into the, the, the dailies and, and our week, um, th this is true for adults. This is true for kids where we just make headway painfully. Uh, even for 13-year-olds like Lydia, favorite pair of sunglasses, $6 cheap sunglasses from Old Navy broke on the floor, and it's like, oh, man. It's terrible, right? It's awful. It's the worst thing. All right, not so bad. But when you do go and you buy a favorite pair of sneakers, of, of, of shoes, not, not cheapo you know, shoes, but 
good shoes, good support, you know, like, all right, we got to take care of this kid's ankles. Um, we, we bought those on Friday and um, brought them home and we're going to back to school shoes or check that box. Good to go. And guess what Larry's new chew toy was on Saturday? Larry spent a little bit of time in his crate Saturday afternoon. Not because he was a bad dog, but because he was being protected from me uh, in, 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 that, in that moment. Um, and, and gosh, what else? Uh, uh, oh, uh, earlier in this past week, Larry decided that he uh, had, took an interest in violin, got into Lydia's music bag, tore her, uh, one of her music books up, and, uh, and there's a little thing that is like a, it, it's a, called a humidistat, I think. Is that the right word? A damp it, whatever. It, you know, you put water on it, you put it in the violin case, it keeps the violin from drying out. Larry ate the whole thing. I can prove it to you, but you don't want me to, you don't want me to do that. I can prove it to you, but you don't really want me to prove it to you, but just, you just got to take my word for it, but I can prove. He ate the whole thing. And so that's just, you know, my 13-year-old my daughter's week. And what about the rest of us? Well, we had an iPhone end up in the toilet by accident. I mean, nobody plans this, but, and, and <laughs> praise the Lord, the toilet was flushed. Um, so we're glad for that. And we pull it out, and we shake it off and we put it in the rice. You know, heard the rice trick. You're supposed to put it in rice for a few days. And we did get it. I mean, we got the screen to power up. And, and I was like, okay, well, I need to put it, connect it back to iTunes and reboot the iOS. And, and then just the black screen of death. And, you know, oh, no, it's not going to work. So then we're off to Sprint yesterday. And um, the guy in there, Trevor, boy, if you need somebody who's kind and helpful, Trevor is your man. Um, and he, he opens up the phone opens up the phone and messes with the battery and it powers up again. And we're all thinking, this is awesome. And we're so, you know, thank you, Trevor. This is fantastic. Thank you so much. And we, we go back, you know, get in the car and we drive off and then black screen of death again. Back to Sprint. Trevor opens it back up and then now it's, it's dead. It's like dead, dead. Not mostly dead, dead, dead. And so that's, that's our phone. Sarah calls, her car won't start, um, you know, they, they were able to jump it. So, okay, you know, maybe we just need to replace the battery. No, we need the alternator fixed too. It's just like on and on, and it's nothing major. I mean, we can handle all of that, but you're just making headway painfully. Do you ever just feel like every time you turn around, you're just making headway painfully, not to mention like serious illnesses? Serious conflicts, real pain, real hardship. I mean, the, the big stuff and then just the, the death by a thousand paper cuts kind of stuff where you're just making progress headway painfully. Somewhere, some, I'm, I think it's probably true for any of us in here who would, would describe ourselves as, yeah, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm following Jesus. At some point, somebody told you, right, that if you give your life to Jesus, your life is going to be better. It's going to go well for you. I mean, he's the king of the universe, right? Get on his team 
and life's going to be better. And it is, and it isn't. I mean, I love the, the expression, what is it? Uh, be kind, because everybody you meet is facing a hard battle. I think that's true. Whether, whether it's you or, or whether it's everybody out there, everyone is facing a hard battle. So, so be kind, be, you know, be compassionate. And yet we start to think, well, if I get on Jesus' team, if I follow him, then, then he's going to help me with that battle, and, and it's going to get better, and it's going to be easier. Life will be easier. And then, and then we just keep making headway painfully. Look at these disciples. They say yes to Jesus. They start following Jesus. And twice now, we've been told in Mark that the, the ministry is so demanding and so nonstop, they don't even have time for lunch. They can't even sit down to a meal. The crowd gets so intense, <clears throat> the needs are so pressing that literally the crowd starts pressing in. If you've ever felt claustrophobia, you don't know anything compared to what these disciples were experiencing. They're worried about a mob. Jesus is worried that this thing's going to turn into a, a revolt. Um, and they go around itinerating. They've left what's comfortable, what's familiar. They've counted that cost. There's the loss of what's familiar and so on. And then, not to mention, oh, Jesus sends them in the boat across the Sea of Galilee. And the most furious storm they've ever encountered, like hurricane style, comes their way. And they're afraid they're going to drown. These are experienced professional fishermen who are afraid for their lives. Not, not to mention what is in their future of opposition and persecution. And let's be candid, even martyrdom. This is, this is what they get for signing on to Jesus' team. Why are, they, why are they still following him around? Who, who does, who sticks on this path? Who stays on this path? Who, follow, who continues to follow this person? Uh, you know, again, another perspective on this whole episode comes from John, where John does tell us that there was many who chose not to stay on that path. They were done. In fact, you know, after many of them walk away, the disciples, you know, are, they, are still there, and Jesus says, well, how about you? Do you are you going to stick around? Are you going to go? And, and, you know, they just simply reply, well, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. That's right on the heels of, of this, this exact experience, um, of feeding of the 5,000. So what about you? What's going to keep you on this path where often it feels like we are making headway painfully? Are you thinking about giving up? Hmm. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor. He's a German theologian and pastor. He, he died as a martyr um, in a concentration camp, resisting the Third Reich um, and trying to, trying to call the, the German Christians to, uh, to authentic discipleship rather than just this, this ruse and, um, you know, this caricature of what the church was going to be. 
Uh, and he wrote a book called um, The Cost of Discipleship. And he compared cheap grace, which thinks that, well, yeah, when we sign up for Jesus, he's our genie and he just makes everything better versus costly grace. And costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. The only true life. I know we make progress painfully, but it is worth it. Let me, let me tell you why. And it has so much to do with what we see here as Jesus steps out on the sea. So um, Mark's reaching this climax in, in his narrative as, and he's describing who Jesus is. And so, so far, you know, the theories are John the Baptist, Moses, Elijah, David, who knows. But now, you know, what we get is the veil pulled back. And as Jesus tramples the Sea of Galilee, we see something really, really brand new. So what's going on here in verse 48 is that, you know, it's three or four or five o'clock in the morning and Jesus walks out on the sea and he's, you know, going to pass by them. And then the disciples see him and they, they're terrified and they cry out uh, and so on. So now we've got this vision of somebody who doesn't just walk up onto a mountain, but who walks on the water. And again, the question is, where have you heard this before? This is an echo that's been repeated before in Scripture. Not by Moses. Not by David. Not by Elijah. Not by John the Baptist. No, no other human character in the Bible has ever done this. But that passage from Job that we read just a little bit ago, the one that talked about how the whole, uh, who, who, that God who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, the next two verses go like this. Who commands the sun, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Jesus is a man, but he's not any man. He's fully human and fully God. That's the mystery and the beauty of the incarnation, and that's what enables Jesus to step out onto the waves of the Sea of Galilee and still them. He is God come down and man gone up, he represents us to God and God to us. And yet, there's this kind of weird thing where, okay, Jesus is showing us his divinity. Why then does he want to pass by the disciples seemingly unnoticed? That's a misreading. He wants to be noticed. But he wants his glory to be seen in a way that, again, is a reminder, when have you heard before God passing by somebody intending for them to see his glory? 
Moses on the mountain. And God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But behold, there's a place where you shall stand on the rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Yet instead of recognizing the glory and the divinity of Jesus, the disciples can't comprehend what's going on. They think they are you know, witnessing something paranormal instead of something supernatural. Jesus reassures them, take courage, take heart. It's me, don't be afraid, right? And I mean, just the, the echoes are all over the place. Where else do you hear in the Bible, don't be afraid, take heart, it's okay. You know, we get the angels who stand in the presence of God telling the people that they're you know, meeting, don't be afraid. You get God himself. When he calls Moses to stand before him at the burning bush, and Moses says, well, who shall I tell your people is sending me? Who shall I tell Pharaoh has sent me? And God says, I am has sent you. The very same couplet, the very same translation, when you translate you know, the Old Testament into Greek, the Septuagint, ego and me, this is the same words that Jesus is using to the disciples. It's me. I am. It's a powerful display of Jesus' divinity. And yet, instead of recognizing who he is and being comforted by that and rejoicing in that, you get this really, I mean, it's disappointing, isn't it? Look at the end. In verse 51, they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They've got this spiritual version of cardiomyopathy where you know, there's this hardening of the, the, the heart. Um, that's a physical condition where the muscles, uh, the walls of the heart thicken, and it's harder for the heart to pump blood. Um, spiritually, that's the case, and we all struggle with this to one degree or another. It's not like you believe in Jesus, and then all of a sudden your heart is you know, perfectly soft and perfectly pure or whatever. We, we still have degrees of hardness of heart where we have you know, varying degrees of unbelief and doubt and skepticism. And the whole point of this passage is to just wipe that away, blow all of that skepticism away and soften our hearts more and more, right? To get rid of our spiritual cardiomyopathy. So how do we do this? Well, you know, Job, again, that same passage gives us this other, you know, brilliant insight. He says, how can a man... Be, in the sight, be right in the sight of God, right? He, God's, God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded, right? So the disciples are still trying to figure Jesus out. And I think in a lot of ways, all of us, one way or another, are still trying to figure Jesus out. If you have said yes to Jesus, if you're a disciple, if you've been born again and you're following him, good. But I promise you, this side of glory, he'll still surprise us. We can't put him in a box and put the lid on it. We still have more to figure out. What does it mean for Jesus to be fully human, fully God, and spend the rest of your life wrestling with that and taking comfort from that? As we make progress painfully, 
The difference is not, you know, oh, well, this group over here who got on Jesus' team now have an easy life versus this group over here who haven't said yes to Jesus and still live this, you know, have this painful progress going on in their lives. That's not the distinction. That's not what it means to be in the church or out of the church, to be in Christ or out of Christ. It's not whether you have an easy life or a hard life. It's whether or not Jesus is in the boat with you. Whether or not you take comfort from knowing that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, is with you and he's for you. He loves you. And he gave himself for you. I mean, what these are the disciples and they're still wrestling with their hardness of heart. They've seen Jesus feed the 5,000. They've seen him, you know, um, heal countless people. They've heard his teaching that just makes them go, we've never heard anything like this before. They've seen incredible miracles. They've seen demons delivered from people. Um, They have seen a little girl, a 12-year-old little girl raised to life who was dead. They've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. But it still hasn't convinced them of who Jesus is. What's it going to take to convince them and what's it going to take to convince us? And the final proof is actually kind of surprising. So the place that you wouldn't, you wouldn't expect to see divinity on display, and it's the cross. At the cross, what we expect to see is depravity on display. I mean, that's where people go to die. That's where people who are guilty, who are the enemies of you know, the Roman government, would be executed. That's... Uh, whether it's just or unjust, the execution alone is just horrific and, and a testimony itself to you know, our depravity and our shame and our guilt. But then, you know, if the person who's hanging there is guilty, then it's just the picture of mortality, not divinity. And yet, because it was Jesus who hung there, it is simultaneously the evidence of God's capacity to forgive sin of the perfection with which he loves us, even his enemies. Like there's, that ratchets love up so far beyond what you and I generally experience. That he would take our shame and take our guilt away. That's the evidence of Jesus's divinity on the cross. And that's what helps us come to grips with who he is. Remembering that he stood in our place He offers to take our sin on himself. He offers to be our sin-bearing substitute. He offers to be our righteous representative when we're connected to him, united to him. We get his glory. We get his resurrection. We get his life. And that's what makes life better for following him. Not easier, but better. I don't have to sweat the small stuff. I don't have to sweat the shoes. I don't have to sweat the humidistat. I don't have to sweat the iPhone. I don't have to sweat the battery or the alternator or the big stuff. When we have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who's saying, I am for you, I am with you. Can any human being do what Jesus did on the cross? No. 
You may have somebody who's very good and very noble and very kind and very loving and say, I will sacrifice myself for another. But no matter how good or how loving or how kind they are, that sacrifice would never be enough to take sin away. It would never be enough to take guilt away. It would never be enough to take shame away. But Jesus does that for us. He gives us a hope. He gives us a future. He gives us peace, despite the fact that life seems to be this series of making headway painfully. Philip Yancey says, why am I a Christian? I sometimes ask myself. Why am I still on this path? Why, despite hardship and pain and making headway, you know, with so much difficulty, why am I still here? And he says, to be perfectly honest, the reasons reduce to two. Number one, the lack of good alternatives. Think about it. Second, Jesus. Jesus, brilliant, untamed, tender, creative, slippery, irreducible, paradoxically humble. Jesus stands up to scrutiny. He is who I want my God to be. Don't stop following him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us Jesus. Who isn't just a better baptizer, who isn't just a better Elijah or a better David or a better Moses, but is, but is God come to be with us to represent you to us and us to you and to love us and to give himself for us. And how can we not worship him? How can we not follow him? He alone has the words of eternal life. He alone is eternal life. And so we pray that you would comfort us and bless us as we make headway painfully, as we follow you. You were a man of sorrows. You understand our suffering. Thank you for suffering with us. Thank you for getting into the boat with us. Thank you for doing life with us. Help us to glorify you. Help us to follow you faithfully. Help us to encourage others to not give up and to stay on this path and to follow you, to love you to receive love, forgiveness, and new life from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.